Acts chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes upon him with John, Peter said, Look at us. And so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And so he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all of the people saw him walking and praising God. And then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all of the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are all witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Chapter 4. Verse 8, Peter speaking now before the Sanhedrin, a religious um, assembly about the events. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray together. How we love to worship you, Lord. And we thank you that you have made a way in Christ for all of our life to be ongoing communion and worship to you. And even as we have worshipped you in song, Lord, now we turn to your word and look to continue that worship and the study of your word. Would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit? 
through your eternal word this morning, Lord. Would you minister to us from your great heart, Lord? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the single greatest event in all of human history. Without it, his birth would have been no more significant than the birth of billions of other people in human history. Without it, his death upon the cross would be no more significant than the death of billions and billions of others, people who have died in the course of human history. But it is his resurrection that declares his birth and his death to be unique in human history. And it is through his resurrection that God has provided mankind with a victory that is greater than all that life and all that death can throw at us in the fallenness of this place called planet Earth. And for this reason, because the resurrection of Jesus is so significant, the gospel was never preached in the early church, independent of the preaching of Jesus' resurrection. Never do you hear the gospel or the good news preached in the book of Acts, except that there is the made mention of his life, of his death, but also of his resurrection. Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, declared, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. There is no true good news. There is no gospel in the human condition or in human history or in an individual human heart apart from the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Because apart from that resurrection, there is no answer for death and there is no victory for death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is testified to by the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah chapter 53 clearly predicted the death of the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. Isaiah wrote in the famous chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, He, that is the Messiah, Jesus, was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, death. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave, death, with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah went on to write in that same chapter, Therefore I will divide him, that is Jesus, a portion, the Father speaking, with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And yet, even as the Old Testament scriptures spoke of the death 
of the coming Messiah. It also declared Psalm chapter Psalm 16, verse 10, that the Messiah would not remain in that dead condition long enough for his body to see corruption, but that he would be resurrected. The verse goes like this for you, David, speaking by the spirit of God to the father, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol and then of the Messiah, nor shall you allow your holy one to see corruption. A thousand years before Jesus was even born into human history, David declared that the Messiah would see death, but not corruption. That is that he would die but that he would not remain in that dead condition long enough for his body to rot or to decompose. The Holy Spirit clearly declaring that the Messiah would both die and raise from the dead. Jesus himself predicted his resurrection from the dead. The Jewish religious leaders of his day, they were, there were two main sects of Jews. There were the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they came to Jesus, and they asked him for a sign. And the sign that they were asking for was an evidence to his claim to be the promised Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world, and further his claim to be the Son of God. And Jesus spoke to them because they're asking for another sign of him as an evidence of this. They had signs anywhere they wanted to look as evidence for this. Throughout the entirety of the land of Israel, you had the blind seeing, you had the deaf able to hear, you had the mute able to speak, you had lepers being cleansed of their leprosy, you had people being raised from the dead, the poor had the gospel preached to them, all as God said would be the case when the Messiah came into the world. And Jesus spoke to him and he said, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. He says, nevertheless, I'll give you a sign. As Jonah the prophet was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man, speaking of himself, be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, speaking of his death, that he would die, but that he would not remain in that dead condition long enough for his body to see corruption, but that he would be raised again on the third day. The sign that he gave them was of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that he would die, remain in that condition for three days and three nights only, resurrection. He repeatedly and plainly taught the disciples over and over again that the day would come that he would enter into Jerusalem and that he would end up being abused by the Jewish religious leaders of the day, end up being crucified and on the third day, rise again from the dead. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 is an example of this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was testified to by many eyewitnesses. The first person that Jesus uh, revealed himself to following his resurrection was a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons early in his public ministry. Mark chapter 16 records it this way. Now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, 
that Sunday of his resurrection, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. He then appeared to a group of women who had come early on that Sunday morning before the sun was even rising. And as they came to Jesus's tomb, they were not expecting a resurrection at all. They had come in order to further anoint Jesus's body for burial. He had been hastily buried because of the Passover feast on the day of his crucifixion. And they felt that his body deserved greater anointing and greater respect and had been shown to it even at the hands of, of, of the great things that were done uh, to to him. So they come to further anoint his his body. And Matthew's gospel tells us, even as Pastor Jonathan read, that the angel then greeted them and said to the woman, women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, for he is not here. He is risen, as he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to bring his disciples word And as they went to tell his disciples Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. They left with fear and joy. And Jesus is basically saying, This is not a time for fear. This is an event for one emotion. And the emotion is joy. He said, Rejoice. For they, for, and so they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. And there I will see them. Peter saw Jesus following his resurrection. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and spoke of that, declaring in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he was seen by Cephas. And then he was seen by the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Mark's gospel records after that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. Jesus appeared then to the eleven apostles of the disciples in a room on the evening of the Sunday of his resurrection. And as he appeared to them, they became witnesses of his resurrection. Thomas was absent in that meeting. And so Jesus waited seven more days on the following Sunday. He appeared to all of them again, Thomas being present and his faith being bolstered by the resurrection of Jesus and his confession of faith in Jesus as a result. Jesus then appeared to seven disciples on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. As following the resurrection, Peter had gone to the north and he had kind of figuring to go a half step into his old life. And he declared to the group of fellow followers of Jesus with the words, I'm going to go fishing, return to his old livelihood. They said, we'll go with you. And Jesus proceeded to give them a great catch of fish that was a miracle, meet with them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and restored Peter publicly back into ministry. Jesus appeared then to the apostles and were told over 500 brethren at once. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians, For I declare, delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Jesus also appeared to his half-brother by the name of James, and his final appearance, recorded appearance in the scriptures, was his appearance before the apostles, before his ascension into heaven, as he has reached the place now where he is going to ascend back into the heaven that he had come from. And Acts chapter 1 verse 9 records it in this way. Now when he, Jesus, had spoken these things to them, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And so it went on like this for 40 days, the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven, back into the heaven that he had come from. One appearance after another, after another, after another, leaving a sea of witnesses, eyewitnesses to his resurrection. I tell you, I am so thankful for all of the priceless theology of Jesus' resurrection, why it is so important to us. I'm more thankful than I could ever express. And I'm thankful for each and every one of these eyewitnesses to his resurrection as well. But I am thankful that Christianity not only richly satisfies the mind, but that it also warms and it satisfies the heart. And in this vein, I am so thankful for the internal, personal witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that each and every Christian possesses, and that is the witness of a changed life. That changed life, the change that God has produced within our lives because of our faith in Jesus, is a witness to us individually of his resurrection, a 24-7 witness in our hearts that he has risen and living his life inside of us. It is a witness. Our lives then become a personal witness to the whole world that he has risen as they witness the change that he has brought to our lives and the change that he brings to our lives on a daily basis. I think about the testimony of the, and the witness of changed lives from the Bible. And we have one of the great examples of it here in Acts chapter 3 and 4. Got a lame man, and his condition is laid out before us. He's unable to walk. He's been in that condition from his mother's womb, from the day of his birth. The description of his healing in verse 7 reveals that The problem related to his lameness are his feet and his ankles. His daily existence in those days, being crippled, being lame in this way, the inability to walk around uh, rendered you almost helpless for getting around. There were no wheelchairs in those days. Uh, There were uh, not only did they not exist, but the roads and the pathways and the walkways weren't sympathetic to those kind of modern instruments. 
And not being able to walk meant that that man would have to be carried everywhere he went. In 40 years, he had never known a single day in his life that he had not been a burden to somebody. And at his birth, when his parents looked at his feet and looked at his ankles and they saw that those feet and those ankles weren't right, they knew in light of the ancient world that this child is in for a very hard life. And for 40 long years, he has come to understand day by day just how hard life can be. Every day carried by someone to the beautiful gate, one of the entrances to the temple in those days, in order to beg for his existence, his life completely centered upon the entrance to the gate of the temple. And that's been his condition for 40 long years. And then he enter in Peter and John. And they're going to the temple, we're told in verse 1, at the hour of prayer, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And as they're making their way through that beautiful gate, the lame man gets their attention and asks them for alms, asks them for some charity. They stop, we're told, in verse 4, and they fix their eyes upon this lame man. And then Peter then commanded the man to look at himself in John. Maybe the man is sitting there kind of mindlessly, you know, alms for the poor, alms for the, the needy. Peter snaps him completely out of it. And the lame man then gave Peter and John his full attention, fully expecting, we're told, to receive money from them. I assume that in this begging, for lack of a better term, the begging game, that once you can, a, once you can secure eye contact with someone and then engage that same someone in a conversation, that the odds must go up dramatically that that person is now going to give something uh, to you in terms of of alms. Peter made a statement to the man in verse 6, Silver and gold I do not have. Probably when he heard those words, his heart sank. Then get out of my way and make room for someone who has silver and gold. This is how I make a living. But Peter followed it up with, But what I... Do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter then grabbed this man by the right arm and he lifted him up and the man received healing into his feet and strength into his ankle bones. An old preacher said the crippled beggar asked for alms and got legs. (laughs) Verse eight. The response of the man is beautiful. You can't, you can try and put it into words. And the Holy Spirit does. But there's so much emotion in that verse. He feels that his legs have been changed in his body. And he begins to leap and stand. And he walked. And he entered into the temple and then he walked some more and he leaped some more and he praised God. He was a changed man. Again, a joy in the verse that's beyond what words can describe. And you just put yourself in his place, what he's feeling at the moment, not only in his feet, but in his heart and in his mind. He's never been up on his feet. He's never walked, not one day in his life, not one step in his life. 
He doesn't even know what it means to jump. He's only been able to watch other people. And now he's leaping and he's jumping and he's praising the Lord. And in one moment, his entire life has been changed. And Peter gives the explanation for the change to the crowd. Because they gathered around immediately to find out what happened in the miracle of the change in this man's life. Again, in Acts chapter 3. Peter said, but you have denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the Prince of Life, speaking of Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, of whom we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him, that is Jesus, has given this man his perfect soundness in the presence of you all. His explanation to the Jewish religious leaders after they had arrested James and John, for, uh, Peter and John, for having a part in this miracle. Again, Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Peter then stands with them before them, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole, declaring that this man's changed life was an evidence of the fact that Jesus was not dead, but risen and alive as evidenced. By changed lives. I think of the Apostle Paul in this vein. An absolute monster before he came to know the Lord. A religious monster, but a monster nonetheless. There was not a single human being alive at the time who hated Christians, hated Christianity, hated Christ, hated Jesus more than this man did. And his wasn't a private hatred of Christians in Christianity. He began in the considerable power that he possessed a persecution against Christians in Jerusalem that wreaked havoc among the body of Christ there in Jerusalem, sending people fleeing from their homes and scattering out all around the known world to relocate. And not satisfied with what he had done to Christians in Jerusalem, just wetting his appetite like a fox or some animal that has tasted blood, he decided upon knowing that there was a considerable Christian population in Damascus that he would go there and do the same thing to Christians and the Christian church in Damascus that he had done successfully in Jerusalem. And as he's making his way on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus, intent upon putting violence upon the Christians, imprisoning them, putting them to death if necessary. And as he's on his way to continue this persecution of his, he, Jesus, in a manner of speaking, knocks him off of his high horse. And Paul, we know him affectionately as the Apostle Paul, but he wasn't always so affectionate. And Saul of Tarsus came to faith in Jesus and his life was miraculously changed. And for the rest of his life, he would tell anyone who would listen of the day that the risen Jesus 
He knew there was no other explanation for his life. The day that the risen Jesus came into his life and changed him in an instant on that road to Damascus. I think of the story of a Jewish man born in Vienna, Austria, March 7th, 1825, born into a very wealthy family, very cultured family, upper class family. And he distinguished himself as a scholar and as an order. And at the young age of 16, he entered the University of Vienna to study philosophy and to study medicine. He later attended university in Budapest, Hungary. And while he was there, he was put under the tutelage of a Jewish student named Porgos, who had to leave Budapest for six months to undertake a course in order for him to get his doctor's degree. And before leaving, he introduced this young man to a Reverend Wingate, a Scottish missionary to the Jews in Budapest, with the request that Wingate would teach this young man English, this young Jewish man, and befriend him in his absence. Well, Reverend Wingate was surprised at this, and he said, How can you, a Jew, entrust me with your disciple when you know very well that I'll have to pray for his conversion? And Porgos replied, Never mind, I don't know anyone who could so faithfully care for him in my absence. And Wingate's companionship and that of his associates so greatly impressed the young man that he wrote of this chapter later in his life, The purity and the holiness of these men attracted me. Their earnestness and firmness of their convictions drove me to investigate their faith, which made them so much better than myself or any people I ever knew. From Wingate I received the New Testament. I shall never forget the first impressions Jesus' Sermon on the Mount made on me, nor the surprise and the profound feeling I experienced while reading the New Testament. The Christianity which I knew as such hitherto was not Christianity, but what I did not know was the teaching of Jesus which prepared me, uh, which opened to me such unfathomable depths. And before long, he became a believer in Jesus. He would later pastor churches in Scotland and Romania and become the select preacher to the university at Oxford, England. And the young man's name is Alfred Edersheim. And among the greatest books that you can read about the life and the times of Jesus were penned by Alfred Edersheim. Books like The Temple, its ministry and services at the time of Jesus Christ, Jewish social life in the days of Jesus, and the most famous of all, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. All of those books remain in print to this day. His life was changed by Jesus, changed out of a religious background. Then completely on the other end of the spectrum, I think of a Calvary Chapel pastor who, before coming to know the Lord, he lived on the wrong side of the 1960s in the United States of America. By 1969, he was deeply in debt and he had destroyed his marriage and his family. His wife fled him with the children. One day in Southern California's Yucca Valley, four in the morning on LSD, and he was chanting his TM mantra. He and his friends were looking down at this white dome building situated below them, and his friends told them that it was a space machine. 
that gave off electromagnetic pulses and would take him back in time and that a UFO was due to arrive any time to take him there. Well, one night a drug friend had dropped him off at a drug house with a gift, LSD laced with rat poison. And when he took it, he said his speech and his vision blurred rapidly and he was becoming more and more paranoid every second. He said, I knew I was overdosing, so I asked for someone to take me to the hospital. And the owner of the house told him, you're okay, no problem. And instead of helping him, they decided they were going to have a little bit of fun with him. And so he wrote in his autobiography, at a sign from the owner, I felt those in the room grabbing me. They took off my shoes, my socks, my shirt. They tied my hands behind my back, and then they tied a cloth bag over my head. I knew I was going to die, and I started screaming. I saw spirit forms floating by. I called out to them, wondering if they were God or they knew God. And I squirmed into a bedroom, and then I pressed my forehead against the floor to pray. And then I felt the barrel of a revolver pressed against my head, and suddenly I heard a deafening explosion of 45 pistol exploding only inches from your head is devastating. He said, try that amplified by the power of LSD. He said, my head was gone. I knew it. My brains had been blown out. In truth, it was either a blank or they had fired at the wall. But to me on LSD, that was it. I'd been shot in the head. And for the next two years, he walked around public streets, convinced that the entire left side of his head had been blown off. A week before this event, he handed him a week later after this event, he handed himself over to the Laguna Beach police, telling them that he was with the Beatles. And that morning, spirit voices had directed him to baptize himself in the Pacific Ocean and then go down the Pacific Coast Highway, uh, handing out his uh, LP rock albums. And his words to the police receptionist were, ma'am, I'm with the Beatles, and they're in town to do a nude pop art reproduction of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a yellow submarine. And they locked him up in a mental hospital. <laughs> and in April 1970, he stood up and he accepted the Lord into his life at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And over time, the Lord healed his mind, brought him back into reality in the fantasy world that he was in. And today he pastors one of the largest churches in San Diego County. And his name is Mike McIntosh. I never can see Mike or talk with Mike except that I think of the fact that his life and the only explanation for his life is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is no other explanation for the life of Mike McIntosh. The explanation in the words of Peter, let it be known to you all and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you all. And you know and I know that we could go on for hours and days and weeks and months and literally years telling the story of the millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people in the last 2,000 years who have had their lives changed by not a dead Jesus, but by a resurrected 
Jesus. In fact, we could go in this room row by row through the whole sanctuary and have every person that knows the Lord share their salvation story. It would take days, even if we were brief, in order to do that. Just in one little church, in one little town, in the whole big wide world. And as we would tell our salvation story, the circumstances would all be different related to our lives. But every one of them would tell a similar story. They'd have a common thread that the only explanation for our changed lives is that Jesus is risen indeed and that he is now living inside of us. You see, the evidence for Jesus's resurrection is not 2000 years old. It is current in human history. It reaches right into this hour and right into this room, the testimony of changed lives. And that change that Jesus has produced in uncountable millions upon millions upon millions of people, he wants to produce in every single person. If you sit here today and you have not yet put your faith or your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that isn't something that is a part of your history yet. You haven't yet taken that step. He wants to produce change in you and to bring a new life into your life. And how does that happen? By just trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins just as Jesus instructs you to. In the most famous verse in all of the Bible, Jesus himself said, For God so loved the world. God loves you. He loves your soul. He values your soul. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, into the world. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes or trusts in him for salvation should not perish, but have everlasting life. And when you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the greatest miracle that can happen in all of life happens. And it's the miracle of being born again. And it is God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ comes inside your life. It's real. It's as real as the seats that you're sitting in and the building that you're sitting inside of. And the Holy Spirit comes in your life. And when the Spirit of Christ comes into your life, he brings with him a will to do and the power to do of God's good pleasure. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he provides us with the want to. He provides us with the how to of living a Christian life, a Christ-like life, and the result always is a changed life. And it's all there for the asking and the receiving this morning. Because Jesus has done all the heavy lifting. He's paid the price to make it a free gift because we could never earn it from him. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service. And they're going to have a badge on that says prayer, so you can identify them easily up in front. And they'd love to pray with you this morning to begin that relationship with God and to allow God to make the changes in your life that he longs to make in your life. 
to change you into Christ-likeness. And he'll begin that at your invitation. I think about this man who was lame that morning. And they put him at the gate beautiful. He has no idea that his whole world is about to change because of a resurrected Jesus. To him, it's just going to be one more day and a long string of 40 years worth of days where he hopes to get enough to be able to eat that day and then go and do the same thing tomorrow. But God knew he was going to change his life on that afternoon. Maybe you've come into this place today. And you come in, you say, well, it's Easter and somebody invited me and I ought to go and see or some curiosity or something. Or maybe you've just been flat up and bribed. It's your mother's birthday. She said, that's the only thing I want for my birthday. You come. So you sit in a room like this. God knows all the motivations that are in a room like this. He's bigger than all of me can break through all of it. And so you sit in a place like this. God speaks to you about your soul. Speaks to you about your need for change and his willingness to do it. And the day where you thought you were just going to put in a little bit of time and then go to Mimi's for brunch or wherever, God had something else in mind. And you know today's the day for you to give your life to the Lord and let him make a miracle of you now. And make you a testimony to the fact that Jesus is not some ancient historical figure, but that he is alive and living today and willing to live in people like you and me and make changes in our lives for his glory. Take advantage of the opportunity to do so this morning. Again, I love the theology and all of the theological implications of Jesus' resurrection. I love it. I love how the word of God stretches the mind and satisfies the mind. I love all of the testimony of all of the eyewitnesses that are recorded in the biblical accounts. They're priceless to me as well. But most of all, I love the fact that my life has become a personal witness to the fact of his resurrection. And like each of you that are also Christians in this room this morning, I know like no one else but God and I can know that there is no other explanation for the quality of the life that I get to live every day as a Christian. No other explanation for it apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he is alive and living and willing to indwell people like me as a witness to that resurrection. And so it is with every Christian. I remember as a kid, you never know what's getting through to a kid at church. Children's ministry, you understand it. But I remember being a young boy and being exposed to a song that really resonated me with me. As, as a young kid, you would look at it and say there's nothing snappy about it, peppy about it that would, you know, grab a, a, a nine-year-old or a ten-year-old's attention. But it grabbed me. The words grabbed me. And I know it was the Spirit of God doing that in my life. 
Those words resonated with me then, and I'll tell you something. It becomes more and more precious to me the older I get. It's an old spiritual song called He Lives. The first stanza goes like this. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Let's stand together and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of the witnesses you have given this world and each individual in this world and in this room to the veracity, the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We thank you for the witness of your Holy Spirit in the form of your scriptures. We thank you for the witness of the eyewitnesses 2,000 years ago. And Lord, this morning, in a special measure, we say thank you, Lord, for the internal, personal, powerful witness you have given each one of us as your children of the resurrection of Jesus. The difference and the change that you have made in each one of our lives. We give you praise this morning for his resurrection and what it means to our minds and also what it means to our hearts, Lord. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.